But I just add my welcome to that of Ryan's, especially if you're a guest or a visitor with us this morning, you're especially welcome. A few years ago, I was sent and was watching a video on YouTube uh, taken on a camera phone um, of a scene that unfolded in a town near where I live. Uh, there was a group of people having a sort of a gathering in, in the middle of this town. One of them had double parked. One of them had parked illegally. And a parking attendant had come and had quite rightly ticketed them. And they were outraged at this. And the scene unfolded, and I have to say it was a fairly ugly scene as a, an increasingly large group of men gathered around this young woman who was doing her job and kept shouting at her and kept talking over her, how dare you do this? We've done this for years. We've parked here for years. But she stood her ground because she was in the right. She stood her ground because she had the authority to do it. In fact, they said, look, the Royal British Legion have parked their car and put their stand up there and you haven't ticketed them. And she said, well, they have the authority to park there and you don't. She stood her ground because she had the authority to do it. This idea of authority is something that permeates all of our lives, isn't it? It starts whenever we're in the playground. Someone says to you, we have to go back inside now. And the other child says, says who? I, is that just you saying it because you're not the boss of me? Or is that the teacher telling me we have to go back inside because they have the authority to do it? This idea of authority is the right to tell someone what to do, how to behave, to command their obedience. That is what authority is. And all throughout our lives, we either wield authority or come under it. Now, over the last two years, we've been working through Luke's gospel, Luke being one of the four books of the New Testament that deal with the historical facts of Jesus' life on earth. Uh, and uh, in our last section last year, we thought about the journey uh, that Jesus was making really from the transfiguration up to Jerusalem and about the disciples coming with him on that journey and some of the discipleship that happened, some of the learning that happened to them on that journey. But now in this section, in our final section that we're starting this year, we have arrived at Jerusalem. And you can feel the drama is really building in the narrative now. It feels like it has all been leading up to this moment. And, and, and uh, Gareth took us last week through the first act of, of this section, the, the triumphant entry, the triumphal entry as we call it, when Jesus made his royal movement towards the city of Jerusalem and the people appeared to welcome him with open arms. And so it seems that Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem riding high on this wave of popularity and popular acceptance. And yet we're going to find over the next few weeks that within a matter of days, the city had turned on him. And so we're going to go from the Hosanna, Hosanna, of the triumphal entry last week to crucify him, crucify him in a few weeks' time. How would it happen? Well, we're going to start to see that unfold this morning. Now, we know the people aside that the leadership, the, the elite, those in power, if you like, um, at the time didn't hold Jesus in any regard at all. In fact, at the end of chapter 19, the one we did last week, we're told that they were seeking to destroy him seeking to destroy him. 
And so they approach Jesus, and there comes this series of clashes between Jesus and those in authority over the next chapter and a bit. And the one we're going to encounter this morning is the first of that. So let's come to the passage itself. Luke chapter 20, starting at verse 1. Feel free to read along, to look it up on your phone, or just to listen as we read it. Luke chapter 20. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now, tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them but they feared the people. God will bless his word to us and keep it open in front of you as we work through it. So the scene opens with Jesus teaching in the temple. He's here at the center of religious and social and cultural life in Jerusalem, in the country at that time, in the temple, and he's teaching openly, and the people are coming and the people are listening. Um, But the, the Jewish leadership, the scribes and the chief priests and the elders come as well. And so they come and they say to him, tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Who is it that gave you this authority? Show us your credentials. Show us your warrant. Show us us some way to justify that you're able to do this. It has a bit of a a how dare you flavor to it, doesn't it? 
I remember a long time ago when we lived in, in our first house after we got married and we were doing up the little garden at the back of it in this little terraced house and there was a, a gate that opened onto a communal parking area. And me and my brother-in-law, we were working away in the garden and this man just appeared in the gate and he said, what are you doing? He said, well, we're just doing up our garden. He said, I do the gardens up around here. And there was this moment of, goodness me, it was that feeling of, uh, gosh, I didn't ask this man permission to do something in my own garden. But that's the same flavor that we get here, isn't it? Jesus didn't need the permission of the chief priests and the elders. Justify yourself to us. Whose authority do you have to be teaching like this, to be saying these things, to be upending the temples? to be upturning the system that we have here. Whose authority, Jesus, do you think you have? And that's still a question that gets asked today, isn't it, as well? What authority do you have, Jesus, to claim that you're the only way to be right with God? What authority do you have to say what is right and wrong morally? Who gave you the authority to say that to me? What authority do you have to make some claims on my life, Jesus? or on our world, or on our culture today. Maybe you're sitting here this morning asking yourself that same question. What authority does this man, Jesus, have to speak into my life? So given that it's a question that's still being asked, it's important for us this morning to see how Jesus answers it and just what that answer is. So let's look at Jesus' reply. In verse 3, he says, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? So the first part of that, just to be clear, that I also will ask you a question. The implication is this. You answer my question, and then I'll answer your question. So I'm going to put a question to you. You answer it, and then I'll answer yours. And then he says, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? I don't know if you've ever been in a meeting and, and someone has asked you a question and you know in that moment that you're sunk, but this is one of those moments. Just for a moment, John the Baptist, if we remember, was this wild prophetic figure who had come before Jesus, who had had this dynamic and compelling ministry out in the desert when he had called the people of Israel to repentance, to turn away from the sin, from the wrongdoing in their lives, from the breaking of God's law, to turn themselves away from that and to a fresh commitment to God. And as a sign of that, the people came to John and John baptized them. He dipped them in the river and lifted them up again. And John, as well as calling the people to repentance, proclaimed that Jesus was the chosen one of God. Jesus was the Messiah, this figure that had been waited for for hundreds and hundreds of years who would come and bring salvation, who would come and bring deliverance. And also, critically, John baptized Jesus himself. To the surprise of everyone, John particularly, Jesus arrived at that time of John's ministry, and John points to him, look who is coming, the Lamb of God. And Jesus says, I want you to baptize me, John. And John can't get his head around this. But Jesus wanted John to baptize him to identify himself with the people he had come to. And, and when John baptized Jesus, 
the heavens opened, and God said, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So that's, that's the context of this question that Jesus is asking. That baptism of John, that ministry of John, was that from heaven or was that from man? So why does Jesus answer their question with a question? Is he just being awkward? Well, he's not doing that at all. And we're going to see as we look at that for a moment just how brilliant that one question from the Lord Jesus was and how completely outclassed the religious leaders at the time were. So the first thing that you can see when he asks, answers their question with a question is there's an implicit rejection of their authority to question him. He didn't just give them an answer the way a, a, a little student would do a teacher. If, if a child came up and, and you said to them, where are the sweets? Have you eaten all of the sweets? Well, the child doesn't say to you, well, before I tell you that, Dad, let me ask you a question. Well, they might try it, but it doesn't go very far because you would say, you are in no position to question me. You have no authority to question me. So at the very basic level, the Lord refuses just to answer them like that. He says, I, I, there's this group of, of powerful and authoritative people who come, and it would be easy for any of us to be intimidated but we see the courage and the confidence of the Lord Jesus as he stands and faces them. He says, well, firstly, I'm going to ask you a question. Secondly, as, as we see in the passage, he ties them up in a trap. And, and the, the leaders at the time recognize it for the obvious trap that it is. They realize, well, if we say it's from heaven, people are going to say, well, why didn't you get baptized by John? And if we say it's from man, well, they're going to stone us because they think it was from heaven. But even though they see it as a trap, they can't think of any clever way to weasel themselves out of it. The third thing with that question that the Lord does is he reminds people of John the Baptist, doesn't he? And he reminds them of the precedent John the Baptist had. John, John didn't have anyone give him authority to do that. John didn't need his ministry rubber stamped by head office in Jerusalem. And the fourth thing for anyone who was really clued in is Jesus will trigger in their minds a memory of what happened, the link between John and Jesus himself, that John pointed to Jesus as the Messiah. And it would maybe for some even make them remember those words that came from the heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. That heavenly declaration that Jesus was God's beloved son. Keep that in your mind. So the leaders weasel away, weasel away with, we don't know, can't, can't answer that, too hard for us. So they're defeated by this question. And Jesus says, well, if you can't answer that, well, I'm not going to answer you, your question. I can't help but pause for a moment and just think what a contrast that leadership at that time was with the leadership that would come in the church just a very short period afterwards. Here were a group of leaders who hated Jesus, who wanted to destroy him, who felt that he opposed everything that they held dear, and yet they still were not prepared to risk their own necks for what they believed. When it came down to it, they were afraid the people would stone them. They valued their own lives more than what they believed. And what a contrast that is with the fate of the disciples martyred, put to death for their allegiance to Jesus one after the other in the years after the New Testament period. 
What a contrast with the people of God through history who have been killed or imprisoned for their allegiance and faith in Jesus Christ, including right up to many believers right now today who are being persecuted for their faith in Jesus, and yet their faith holds strong. Really speaks to the strength of an idea when a person are prepared to give their lives for it. So the leaders have weaseled away with we don't know. And then Jesus turns to the people and Luke records this parable that he tells them. This, this parable of the wicked tenants. You probably see it called in your Bible. And the idea of tenants was something that was very common in the world at that time. And the idea of an absentee landlord was, was perfectly understood as well. Someone would rent the ground, plant the vineyard, and then they would go back to their home far away and they would leave it in the hands of tenants who would work the land for them. And at least probably five years because um, in the Old Testament, in, in Jewish law, we're told that when you planted a vineyard, you didn't get the fruit until at least five years had passed. So a, a long enough period of time has passed from the master in the story planting the vineyard to the drama then unfolding. Let's look again just from verse 9 very briefly at that. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, this one they also wounded and cast out. Pause there for a moment. So, who are the tenants? Who are the servants? What is the vineyard here? Jesus is telling a story that would have rung bells in the ears of his listeners because there's Old Testament imagery picturing God's people as a vineyard. And so then it becomes clear if, if God's people are the vineyard, well, the tenants in charge of it are obviously these religious leaders who we're seeing before us today. And the servants that come successively throughout time to the vineyard are the prophets that through the Old Testament period, God sent these special messengers to his people. And if you know your Old Testament history, you know that for most of them, they were not received with open arms. And so in this brief story, Jesus is encapsulating a huge span of the history of the people. You are God's special people. You're God's special vineyard. And yet those in charge of you have rejected those that I have sent time after time after time. And then let's read the, the last part of it. The, the owner of the vineyard says, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. So at the end of the story, the master sends his son, the heir to the whole thing, the one who is the de facto owner of the whole thing, thinking that perhaps they'll accept his son. And given the context, it's fair to see this again in the terms of authority. They had, the master had sent the servants, had sent these emissaries, and the tenants had rejected their authority. And so the son comes, and the authority of the son is different to the authority of the servants, and yet they reject him as well. The Jewish leadership in this 
skirmish with the Lord were looking to see who gave Jesus authority. Where did it come from? They were seeing him fundamentally as a servant. But Jesus tells this parable to make the point that he is the son. He has intrinsic authority that comes from his nature and from his relationship with the Father. Later in the New Testament, we're given this picture of the Son. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And this is the crux of the whole thing. Jesus does not see himself as another religious figure, another religious teacher, even another prophet. He sees himself as the beloved Son of God, the one who has no external source of authority. My authority comes from the Father. My authority comes from being sent by God. My authority is not of this world. My authority is intrinsic to me as the Son of God. It's not derived from anything. That is, that is Jesus' answer, ultimately, to this question of where is your authority from? I am the beloved Son of the Master. And so the parable indirectly answers that question, but it also is a prophecy of what's about to happen next. Because if it's clear that the tenants are the religious leadership and Jesus is the beloved son, we see very clearly that they're going to kill him. That's what's going to happen next. What a picture of God's graciousness and forbearance with people that this story is, isn't it? I wonder what you would have done after the first servant came home beaten and empty-handed. I think you probably have called the police, or in the time before police, you would have gone and policed it yourself. And yet the master sends this succession of servants, one after the other, after the other, to give them another chance, to give them another chance, eventually sends his own son. What a picture of God and his love for us not prepared to cut us off at the first stumble, but to graciously send us time and time and time again news of his love and care for us. What a picture of God that is. But look finally at the sting in the tail. What is the owner of the vineyard going to do eventually? Jesus makes it clear that the evil of these tenants won't go unpunished. The tenants have made a common mistake. They assume that remoteness equals powerlessness. That because the master is far away, he doesn't care or he's unable or he's not coming. And so Jesus in this is telling us what's going to happen next. The leadership of the people of God is going to change radically. It is going to be taken from those wicked tenants and given to others. And in fact, the people it was given to were the disciples who were standing right beside him at that very moment. What a, what a thing to imagine. The vineyard will be taken from them and given to others. So that's the wicked tenants, and that's the Lord's answer ultimately to why he has the authority to do these things. But look interestingly at the response of the crowd. Surely not. Surely not. They understand what this means, and their answer is surely not. And here we see the heart of the people. 
As much as they liked Jesus and his teaching, when it came to his prediction of the coming judgment of the master on the tenants, they couldn't stomach it. They weren't prepared to have their religious leadership overthrown. And so we see in that a little glimmer of how that great reversal we thought about is going to happen. These people were superficially attached to Jesus, but there was no deep conviction. They were happy to have Jesus rattle the cages of those in power, but they didn't have the stomach for the root and branch transformation. I wonder, do we ever find ourselves saying, surely not, to Jesus in our lives? Perhaps you're someone who's interested in Christian things or or interested in what the Christian message is or or thinks Jesus was a great teacher, someone to be really looked up to, and, and you're happy to be superficially attached to him. But when you realize the sort of root and branch overhaul that has to happen in your life, you find yourself saying, surely not, surely not. Now then Jesus tells them in response to that, why, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Parables are a story told to communicate one thought. So not every detail in the parable communicates to a detail in real life. That that doesn't work like that. For instance, if that was true, that would be picturing God as sort of wondering what he's going to do next. And that's not the picture of God that we have or know to be true. But there is one detail that Jesus wants to to correct or, or, or make sure that they don't leave with. It's the final image of the sun We're left at the end of the story. The son has been dragged outside of the vineyard and brutally murdered and left there, the body lying on the ground. And it's such a brutal image, such a visceral image. And that's the closing image from the parable because that's the message. This is what's coming next for the son. But Jesus wants to make sure that's not the final image of the son we're left with. And he quotes Psalm 118. And the linking here, if you're following it, is the idea of rejection. So they've rejected the servants, but then critically they've rejected the son. And then he goes to this verse that talks about the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So the son who was rejected in the parable is the stone that is rejected in this quote. And that's what Jesus is saying. And look what he says about this stone. First of all, the stone that was rejected becomes the cornerstone. This idea of the foundation stone at the edge of the building that everything was laid off and built on. So the one that got rejected by the builders actually becomes the most critical piece in the whole structure. And secondly, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So far from being left with the picture of fragility as the last image of the son, the beloved son, the final image is one of total permanence. There's this, you get this idea in your head of this huge block of marble that whatever falls on it or crashes against it, there's not even a chip flakes off it. Something so permanent and so strong that the whole structure gets built on top of it. And if you fall on it from a great height, you're completely crushed. And the idea, I think, is this, that in our lives, all of us sooner or later are going to come into contact with the stone. We can be built on him, or eventually we'll be crushed by him. But sooner or later, we are coming into contact with the beloved son. 
And so as we close, it's, it's easy to see the leadership at the time as the villains here, isn't it? It's easy to hiss at them from the audience. How could they not have known that that was Jesus? How could they not have heard or seen what he was saying? It's like when I watch a, a, a film with my daughters and someone new comes on the screen, they say, Daddy, is that a baddie? Is he a baddie? It's clear that the leaders are the baddies here, isn't it? They're the, they're the ones in the wrong. How could they be so willfully blind and wicked as to reject the beloved son? I wonder, has God sent any witnesses into your life, just like he sent the prophets to Israel? Maybe it was a faithful grandparent whose dated wooden Bible verses carved on a little plaque on their wall you find yourself quietly rolling your eyes at. Maybe it was a parent who lived their life day by day in faith and honor to the Lord Jesus as a witness. Perhaps it was a friend who invited you here this morning. Maybe one of those verses that we see on billboards or on buses or at football games that makes such a good punchline. Maybe it's the Christian elements that still permeate our public life, the recent funeral of the queen. Perhaps it's that church building you drive past on your way to work each morning. Perhaps it's the festivals of Christmas or Easter that we so happily celebrate. Perhaps it's the silent prompting in your heart that there must be something more to life than what I've got in front of me today. I wonder, has God sent any messengers into your life? Did you listen to them? See, the shocking message of the New Testament is not only did you not listen to them, but did you kill the son? The Bible says that Jesus, the beloved son, was wounded for our wrongdoing. Time after time, God has spoken into your life, and each time, you have turned him away. You've closed the door. You've turned your back. But here is where the Christian gospel goes so far beyond that parable. See, God didn't just plant the vineyard. He didn't just create the universe and everything in it, including you and me, and own it. It's all his and yet we have consistently rejected his rule in our lives. A long time ago, humanity took a wrong turn. They rejected God's rule in their lives. And from that moment, the moment that the Bible calls the fall, all of the evil and wickedness and things that are wrong with this world have come. And yet there's no point blaming them. For every day, we reject him as well. We say, what authority have you to speak into my life. And yet God has graciously and patiently sent servants, sent messengers, one after the other. And unlike the master in the parable, God knew full well what would happen when he sent his beloved son to earth. He knew that he would be rejected and beaten and killed outside the walls. And he did it anyway because he knew that all of our rejection of him, all of our turning our backs on him, there was a penalty due for that. All of the evil in the world has to be punished. All of the evil in our hearts has to be punished. And he sent his beloved sons that he could be punished in our place so that he can offer us forgiveness so that he can offer us a just peace, and not just forgiveness, but what the Bible calls newness of life 
to start redeeming the broken world, this new creation built on Jesus. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So the final question about the authority of Jesus is what are you going to do with it? Are you going to accept it and build your life upon it? Or will you reject it like the leaders in this passage rejected it? We will all come into contact with the stone. Build your life upon it.